Hey guys, this is Caleb with War Council. Today's episode is an interview with Meg Maples of Arcane Paintworks. Um, it's a little bit of a different episode, so I thought I would give you a brief introduction about it. Um, we had scheduled an interview with Meg uh, and her husband Mark a few weeks ago and just got our wires a little bit crossed. Part of that is due to the continental boundaries. Um, they live on the uh, island of Australia. Uh, and they're about 12 hours ahead of us, actually. So it was really, really difficult to sort of schedule a time that worked for both parties. It ended up being um, on a Friday night for us and on a Saturday during the day for them. Um, so unfortunately, I was I didn't have a co-host with me. It was just me. Um, but that being said, the interview is actually uh, was great. Uh, Meg is, is just a fountain that bubbles over with hobby knowledge. She's worked in the field for many, many years. Um, she's not only a top artist, one of the best artists in the world, I would argue. But on top of that, uh, she has incredible amounts of experience working with companies like Privateer Press, Reaper Miniatures, um, among others. Um, on top of that, her husband Mark is also a painter. They uh, teach at many, many conferences during the year. So you can find their work online. You can meet with them in person during their cons. Um, this past year, she did about six. And in previous years, she's done even more. So um, anyway, it was just a fantastic interview, and I really hope you'll enjoy it. Um, Meg is just very forthcoming with information, and even though Mark was a little shy, once in a blue moon he would input a little bit of data as well, and uh, it was just a, a fun talking to the team of them. Um, time ran quickly, so rather than have a traditional episode, we just thought we would just air the entirety of the interview um, with only a few edits, um, what happened is we started the interview and then we started to get into some of the questions, and so we kind of stopped and backtracked a little bit. So if it feels a little jarring at places, it's because uh, we did edit it just a little bit, but that's mostly to keep it into an hour-long format, um, because Meg just, again, has so much information to share that it was it was hard to, to stop. <laughs> uh, but we're going to bring her back on the show again sometime down the road and definitely get more of her input. Um, check out her website, arcanepaintworks.com. And I hope you enjoy this very special episode of War Council, uh, episode 45, Arcane Paintworks. And without further ado, on with the show. We're going to jump into um, our tips on technique tonight, and we've got a very special guest with us tonight. We're interviewing Meg Maples of Arcane Paintworks, um, and she is coming to us not only all the way from the island of Australia, but also from the future. Uh, she is about 16 hours ahead of us, so whereas where we are, it's her past, and it's her future, and I was fascinated by this time loop concept. So, Meg, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. What is the future like? Is the, is the future, is it a good day tomorrow, or...? Well, uh, here, the future is actually kind of cold, which oh. is a nice thing. Don't tell me that. Uh, You're shattering my dreams about Australia. Well, we just we just had, like, a, a really hot summer day yesterday, so uh, it's actually kind of nice to have a, a little bit of a cooler day today. Oh, okay. It's good painting weather. Nice, this nice. Is, this is something that I think maybe a... Uh, alien concept to most Americans is that there actually is painting weather in Australia because lots of houses don't have air conditioning. Sure, sure. You know, it's one, it's one of those funny things. I actually don't think about what the weather like is in Australia because from my American point of view, the only weather we ever see represented in Australian culture is sunny and bright. Like that's... Uh, I, don't, I don't. I 
I don't ever think about like, do they have do you have seasons? Do you have like a winter? Like, what is that like? No, no seasons. Just drop bears everywhere, and right. spiders are so big that you can ride them around town. Jeez, um, <laughs> yeah, it is just like hot and funny all the time. Oh, okay. All the time. It's not a bad life to live. So just out of curiosity, um, so before we get in too deep, people who want to follow us through this can take it. Check out Meg's website, arcanepaintworks.com. What exactly led you to Australia? Because are you American by 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 birth or nationality? Did you go to Australia like, I don't know, do you follow, did you follow a job? Did you follow a love? Like what brought you out there? So I am American, born and raised. Okay. I uh, grew up in the um, Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area, so... Um, you guys might hear a little bit of a southern accent every now and again throughout the podcast, and it pops out. Um, but I moved to Australia two years ago for my husband. Oh, okay. Australian. Nice. Now, your husband's a painter, too, as well, yeah? He is. Did you guys meet at, like, a, a conference or something? Like, you were teaching, or maybe he was giving a demo or something? Yes and no. So okay. So, we originally met on the Oz Painter forums, like, ages ago, like a million years ago when forums were still like the hot thing to use. Sure, sure. We um, just, I mean, we didn't really become friends or anything, just acquaintances through that, but he sort of, um, you know, kept tabs on like what I was doing when I started working for Reaper and Privateer Press and all that sort of stuff. So when I actually came out to Australia for a convention um, special appearance, he came out to meet me because he Apparently, no other American painter or European painter or anybody had come to Australia to do anything like teaching classes before. So uh, he was curious, and he came out, and we spent the whole time just chilling out, basically, at the convention in between me doing some private one-on-one sessions with people. And uh, we stayed in touch once I got back to the States, and the rest is history. Oh, that's really sweet. Um, I mean, I, I, I've met painter teams before. I think every painter team is unique. Um, and in particular, um, you have to deal with all the challenges of being not only, you know, husband and wife, but also coworkers in a way, because you both, you both are active painters. Is Mark still painting as actively as you are, or is it kind of like one of you paints more than the other? Um, well, I mean, I would say that I paint more than, more than him, but that's because I'm home all day and I can paint all day. Whereas okay. he actually has a full-time job. Sure. Um, working for the Department of Education out here. So. Oh wow, great. So before uh, before there was Mark and Meg, uh, how did you actually get into the hobby originally? Like, was Arcane Paintworks your uh, project, and then Mark joined you in it, or was this like a co site that you guys launched together? Um, and more specifically, how did you get into painting in the first place? Okay, so how I got into painting and this whole wonderful world of sure. RPG or gaming goodness. Is actually, um, I didn't know any of this existed until I was in my second year of university. Okay. I had no clue. Like, through high school, I had heard, you know, the nerdy kids play Dungeons and Dragons at lunchtime, but I was not in that crowd. Believe it or not, in high school, I was actually a jock. Okay. And was with the athletics teams most of the time. So what was the, What was your sport of choice? Uh, swimming. Swimming. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I used to do, like, international swim meets and stuff every year, and so I was, I was a huge, uh, huge jock back then, and uh, when I got to university, I started um, dating a graduate student, and he introduced me to the world of Dungeons & Dragons by coming out of his little gamer closet a month into us dating. Okay, so nice. He, he thought, apparently, I was going to run out the door screaming, and he was a little hesitant about you know telling me that he played Dungeons & Dragons, and it apparently took him by surprise when I asked what 
was about because sure. I had no clue other than knowing that it's what some of the nerdy kids played in high school. Like that I've actually heard that story movie. told from other people the same way that they'll hide it from their significant other for many many moons before yeah, they like, make it known. He, like I, he really sort of freaked me out with the way that he wanted to tell me because I was in the middle of class and he texted me and said, "Hey." Can you come over to my place after class? I've got like, something uh, important to tell you. <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah, I have something that we need to discuss. And I was like, well, if it's going to break up with me, just do it right now. Sure. An hour and a half. Or alternately a marriage proposal. Right. And he's like, no, no, it's, it's not that. It's just something that I wanted to tell you. And I was like, okay. That's so, so you know, funny. sitting there in lecture for an hour and a half, worried just about what he has to tell me that could be so serious. And I get over to his house, and all of his roommates have been kicked out. It's just us, which makes me even more nervous now. So I'm like, oh, God, something serious. <sighs> okay. And he's like, all right, well, I wanted to tell you <laughs> what it is I go and do with my friends on Sunday nights. And my brain immediately goes to, like, oh, my God, he has some weird sexual fetish. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's some weird kink thing. Sure. Or he goes, opium den like I'm thinking of the worst possible things uh-huh. he has to tell me and I was like okay alright what do you go do with your friends on Sunday night and he's like well we we all get together and we play games again my brain just sort of goes off onto all of the horrible <laughs> negative sure. and I was like alright so what sorts of games do you play we hunt people for sport yeah. Real men. He looks at me very sheepishly and says, "Have you ever heard of Dungeons and Dragons?" <laughs> and I was like, "Uh, yeah." And he's like, "Oh, okay." I'm like, "I don't know anything about it though, other than people play it. I, I like, I have no frame of reference. But if it's something you enjoy, you know, why don't you tell me about it?" And he literally just like looked at me like I had three heads when I started asking questions about the game because I guess previous girlfriends had literally just broken up with him on the spot and walked out when he said that before and so when I was asking him like you know how do you play the game how do you describe it and he started pulling out miniatures and the original TSR gray box and red box sets and like he had he was like a lifelong gamer like he had a whole bunch of stuff stashed away and he couldn't wait to show me his monster manuals and when I asked him to go and see what a game was all about with his friends, he thought it was the best thing in the world. And uh, so, yeah, that's how I got into all of this. He um, taught me the, the basic sort of GW way of painting, which is that you, um, you, know, you clean all of your mold lines off, and then you prime it black, and you dry brush your three colors on. <laughs> and if you're really talented, you can manage to paint eyes with toothpaste. So, I mean, it's, it's quite, I mean, for, I, I agree with that 100% that there is a, it's funny that we say that here too, we talk about the three color down GWA, and yeah. it, it's interesting that like for such a large company that has such a foot in the industry, um, it, it really kind of divides people on how painting, how painting models can be because you get, we get folks, we get clients actually that'll oftentimes give us their recipes and it's almost like GW programmed them. It's almost like yeah. they're not only their colors, but like they're following their steps, step-by-step technique guides. Um, and, and while that's useful for, for, I think, a lot of people who are, are just looking to get into the hobby in the easiest way possible, it's really counterintuitive 
uh, when you want to push beyond those limits, when you want to learn new technique and you're kind of, it's almost like teaching you one way to do it when there's so many other possibilities out there. Yeah. Well, and also when people get so reliant on recipes as well, yeah. it takes the creativity out it of does. it. It does. It's no longer an art form at that point. So how did you go from the GW cut and paste method to where you are today, which is to be fair to say a long way from, from the GW cut and paste method? Yeah. So, so after he, you know, like this was all in an afternoon, he literally showed me his entire Dungeons and Dragons stash and things like that. Sure. And then he told me that there was a game store that was close to us, like two miles away. And so I was like, oh, why don't we go and check it out? And so it was actually at the game store that I first saw Reaper miniatures. And on the back of their blister packs, even today, they still have their forum address posted on their blister packs. And so when I got my first miniature, it was a Reaper miniature. And I kept the blister pack, and I actually went to the forums and started checking things out. And um, that was when I started seeing some of Jen Haley and Ann Forrester's work. And I was like, oh. Oh, you can do way more than just dry brush three colors on and paint eyes with toothpicks. Like, this is serious. This is some cool shit. People are doing some really, really intricate, detailed stuff. Yeah, for sure. And so I started posting and lurking on the Reaper forums and sort of became a regular there. And uh, it was just through pushing and asking questions and being the nosy, obnoxious newbie in, in the industry um, that I started pushing myself and got more into painting than into the gaming side. So from there, um, you, you, you obviously began to develop your work. You started to develop your own styles and techniques, that kind of thing. Um, now you work as a, a freelance artist. So at some point you had to take a few commissions, I'm guessing like there had to be a leap between there and, and, and inevitably someone saying, Hey, can you paint mine for me? How much does that cost? Yeah, that was, so for me, that was about six months into painting and okay. guys, at my local game store, I saw what I was producing for me and for my gaming group. Sure. And people started asking if I would paint their models for their games. And mm-hmm. being a broke-ass college student who wanted to eat more than ramen noodles and right. peanut butter and just sandwiches, I was like, hell yes, I'll paint a model a week and actually be able to afford real food. For sure. Groceries. And I'll do it for $10. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's actually, great. Actually, I started out at $50 a <laughs> There you go. Now you're talking. So that's a decent way to start. That values your time very well because we constantly have to, we're constantly, uh, when we we do a lot of quotes, so clients will say like, well, I know this kid willing to do it for $5 a piece. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't even know where to start with that. (laughs) Like, I don't know if I'll assemble it for $5, let alone paint it. Um, So that was really my first commission request was, um, like I hadn't even done a commission before, but being a college student, not having a lot of free time to myself and not having a lot of time to paint, I did already value my time. So the first time I was asked whether or not I would do a commission, a guy had um, a box of Space Marine. Sure. He was like, I want you to paint these, and I want them to look like they do on the box. Right. And, and I said, okay, well, that would be $50 a miniature. And he looked at me and was like, um, no, I'll pay you $10 a miniature. And I said, well, I'll clean it and assemble it for $10 a miniature. Sure. But I'm not going to paint it. Right. Why, so, what, what did he say at that point, <laughs> out of curiosity? He, he actually, he picked up his box and, and walked out the door at the game store and had a little hissy fit outside. So. You know, it's one of the things that we run into a lot is that we find that because there's no necessarily an industry standard, pricing is whatever each individual artist or service wants to book at, that it, yeah. it really can be very frustrating because people who have been using their, their neighborhood kids, so to speak, to like, 
uh, to book their projects for the past decade, suddenly that kid graduates college, no longer is doing it, and then they're out looking for new artists, it can be quite a scare. Like, because they're used to paying five or six dollars a mini, those people have undervalued themselves and their work. And now when we come in and we say something like, well, that'll be a hundred dollars for that. They, they talk to us like we're crazy. Like, how can you, how can you begin to charge that? But, um, yeah, so that actually might be something interesting to discuss because I get so many questions about, so I want to be a freelancer. What mm -hmm. advice do you have for me? What things do you, <laughs> do you think I should do? What sure. things should I avoid? All yeah, that's, that's and, absolutely great, actually. That's actually, you know, one of the things that we wonder a lot of times because obviously there is no industry standard. We love to get different people's opinions about the industry in general um, because it is a bit of a weird it's a spread out community, it's loose knit, yet uh, there's no real definitive ways that anything works. Like, you know, you are, you're a freelance artist, you can take jobs as you see fit or not. Um, and so it, it's in, always interesting to hear how people set up their, their everything, their businesses, their terms, how they, how they bill. Uh, you know, you guys do yeah. freelance commission work, so it's always interesting to sort of see different people's processes, that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, and I mean, I've been doing this for over 10 years now, so my approaches have changed a bit, which has meant also that my clientele has gotten a bit smaller, because when I was first starting out, you know, it was just, it, well, when I was first starting out, it was out of necessity. I lost my corporate job that I had in the 2008 recession, and um, I had a mortgage to pay and student loans to pay back, and a dog to feed and myself to feed and everything like that. And I couldn't find a job, so I started painting um, full-time. I had already been doing commissions part-time just because, so I turned it into a full-time job, and, and back then I needed every and any commission I could get. So sure. I did tabletop, and mainly tabletop with a little bit of display here and there, and then some freelance stuff for like Reaper miniatures because um, I lived two miles from them at that time. and. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you were kind of the, the neighborhood kid or the person, I suppose. And uh, you could, yeah, yeah that's it. So, yeah, I moved out to Texas for, for work before the recession hit. And, and I just happened to um, settle in an area that was literally like two miles from Reaper. And back then I was a huge Reaper fan girl. Cause that was what I started with. Like Reaper for me is what GW is for most people. That was, that was my first mini and my first love. And uh, so I've worked for them as a caster, and I've done some photography for them, and general warehouse monkey, and then also did a little bit of freelance and stuff for them. But um, you know, doing doing that sort of freelance work where you need everything you can get so that you can pay your bills and just kind of eke out a living. To now, I get to be a bit more selective. Sure. Uh, but that's after 10 years of developing a name, a brand, a style, and also having some wider industry experience. You know, like I've actually worked for three companies now as opposed to just doing freelance and out of my bedroom, for, for instance. No, I, I totally get that. I mean, one of the things that, you know, you're in a unique position is that now that you have a body of work, you can afford, I, you know, I don't know if you can't afford afford, but you can, in general, pick your, your projects. You can say no to certain clients, yes to others. And, you know, you can yeah. determine, hey, I want to take this month off. I've got enough saved up. I can do that. That's an option for you. And that's incredible freedom. That's, that's the kind of freedom you can't buy. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm sitting here making gobs of money. But no. I mean. What Mark makes on them, what I make, you know, sure. are, we're, we're able to still have a fairly comfortable life and 
do things that we want to do and not feel like we're missing out on much of anything. Sure. Um, so it, it is nice. It, I can afford to have that freedom, whereas in the past I haven't been able to actually afford to have that sort of freedom. And when you are... I found it really, really hard to deal with um, the fact that I had to do so many commissions. Yeah. You know, just to try and make a certain amount of money so that I could pay all of my bills. That actually sapped my creativity. I got depressed. It was just a struggle. And it, painting just became like a rote activity. It wasn't anything that was really inspiring to me. And, um, even working, even working for Privateer Press to a certain extent. I mean, it's not like that was, you know, it wasn't a fun job or anything, but there were some days when it was very much, all right, I'm painting the 10th man of this unit. I've been looking at the same faction for the last month. Even my, like, I remember painting Signar for an entire month, and I was actually dreaming about Signar models. That was how many Signar models I had painted. Sure. I and mean, for, for me, that's when it starts to get boring, like when you're just doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. So um, now being back on my own and having been back on my own for, for a few years now, it is, it's more interesting when you have a variety of models to choose from. And um, the best sorts of clients, the, the ones that I enjoy working for are the ones that just basically say, here's my budget, do whatever you want, send me the piece at the end of the month. Sure. That's great. I mean, I, I, I mean, on, on a very personal level, I can very much relate to that because I, I kind of got into the same circumstances where I had a job, left the job or, or the job kind of ended. And I kind of had that moment where it's like, all right, well, I can either make this my full time career or not. And this is my opportunity. So I totally get kind of getting forced off the cliff uh, yeah. and then sort of having to sort of take every job you can just to stay, keep your head above water. I get that 100 percent. Um, yeah, I, I can I, I can personally I, relate to that. I have I have a couple of uh, thoughts on this. Yeah. Um, firstly, if you are a freelance painter or a commission painter, or if you are interested in becoming a freelance commission painter, sure. If anybody gawks at your prices, do not budge. Those are the clients you do not want to have. Absolutely. I stress that you say that with with the sounds of experience. Lots of experience okay. and lots of head banging on walls sure. and lots of gnashing of teeth. And yeah. it's just because those are always the clients that are the highest maintenance and yeah. want, the, want to pay the lowest amount of money for their project. They're never happy with anything. They want to micromanage everything. They want pictures every couple of hours. Like, it's just exhausting working for people like that. And also, if somebody thinks that they're going to be able to bully you into a lower price, I mean, what does that say about you if you can't stick to your guns as a professional? And then what does that say if word then gets out that one troll was able to bully a painter into coming down on prices, then the rest of us are going to start getting treated that way. So for me, it actually, the whole community of painters needs to come together. And it's almost like we need to form a guild where we have (laughs) rules and we have expectations and we have a minimum wage set because it, it is really detrimental to the whole community, the whole painting community. If you've got one person who can charge $3 an hour for their miniature work and then the rest of us are having to charge more than that. And also another aspect um, people don't think about is where do you live? 
you know, wherever the painter lives, their local economy dictates what they have to charge. So somebody in Russia or Poland can charge way less than yeah. I can because things are so much more expensive here in Australia. We actually run into that because one of our painters was a Russian painter. He worked for a Russian paint service. Then he relocated to America. And when I told him what we charge for things, he was really, really blown away because our prices yeah. are so much higher. And uh, he's just like, the American dollar just stretches much further. Um, yeah. And it's 100% true, like the Polish services. And they're some of the best painting services in the world. They're some of our chief competitors. Um, yeah. We, a lot of times, price to compete with them when, uh, in reality, they're pricing, you know, they, they absorb way more money per, per capita that way because the money stretches farther out there. So it's yeah. it's a losing battle. Um, it is. Yeah. And I, I mean... I've been told by several Australians since I moved here um, who have contacted me and they say that I'm not worth the money that I charge because they can go over to Europe and get somebody in Europe to paint something for 125 Australian dollars. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, good, go with them. I'm like, I can't charge sure. that little if you want a really elaborate piece done. Like, that's, that's, it's just not worth my time. I'd rather work on something for myself. Personally. Now, to buyer's defense, and I'll, I'll get your opinion about this, because we spend a lot of time thinking about pricing and how, how it all works. And, and we've kind of come up with this wine analogy. I don't know if you're a wine drinker or not. Um, okay, so the basic notion is that there's, there's people who enjoy wine, and there's obviously lots of different types of, of wine in, in terms of pricing. Some wine is $10 a bottle. Some wine is $10,000 a bottle. Now, I am not a wine connoisseur. I enjoy a bottle of wine. I enjoy a $30 bottle of wine more than a $10 bottle. But I think it's safe to say if I, I had a $500 bottle of wine, I would not really appreciate it the way that it's meant to be appreciated. Um, right. So I think that sometimes some clients don't get the difference between uh, a painter who, who, let's say, charges $500 a miniature to start versus one that charges $50 a miniature to start. They can't, they actually honestly can't tell the difference. It's not necessarily sure. their fault. For them, they don't have the, they don't, they have not developed the eye to be able to pick, pinpoint the differences and the details and to understand all of the nuances that make that a $500 model versus a $50 model. So I think that sometimes it's part of our job to educate them. Uh, and part of it is just simply like, well, we charge what we charge and, and you do not have to buy from us, but, um, but it is the rate it is. So I, I totally get where you're coming from. I totally respect yeah. that. Yeah. So the thing is, though, is how do we educate them? Sure. I mean, there's lots of good painting examples out in the world. Sure. I mean, you know, Facebook has put painting really, like, front and center for everybody because you can follow all of the really great artists and see what they're doing on a daily basis. And so you can see the good stuff. And mm -hmm. then you can also see the mediocre stuff. And then you can also see the very introductory level, mm -hmm. you know, newbie level of painting so for, I guess for me as a painter and, and this like you said earlier is coming after 10 years ex over 10 years experience if somebody approached me mm -hmm. for a commission who didn't know the difference between a $5 paint job and a $500 paint job is that a client that I would really want to work for no, but I would say that there are probably, um, like all like all jobs, um, there's uh, there's the landscapers and then there's the yard boys, and there's there's room for both. Um, there's yeah, the new the new painters need the the clients that are paying less, and the the higher end clients, higher end painters hopefully don't take those because uh, there's there's food for everybody, so to speak. Yeah, and and that philosophy I totally agree with. Yeah. I am I'm actually one of I think one of few painters probably out there who if somebody asked me for a commission 
particularly GW minis. Sure. I'm sorry, Space Marines just don't do it for me. Sure. So I don't take those commissions. Um, I will refer them to somebody that I know can do the job and do it better than I can for probably a lesser price than I can, and the client will still be happy. I have no problem doing that. Yeah, but no, I think that's refreshing. We do that too sometimes. We actually have a referral network where we'll say, like, look, we're, we can't do it, but we know this guy. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that... I, I, I think we need to have a little bit more of that sort of um, – sure cooperation within the community because it still seems very much like everything is a super hyper competition mm -hmm. like everyone's fighting for clients whereas i'm just i don't know maybe it's a luxury of, of my position like i said after 10 plus years of doing this but there's work for everyone yeah it, absolutely it matter. and it i mean i would say that for any artist you should paint what you enjoy and then maybe put it up for sale as opposed to focusing solely on commissions. Because when you're constantly realizing other people's visions, you're not really being true to yourself. I, I totally get that. We, we have that oftentimes where, where everyone's telling us what they want painted and the way they want it painted. And I try to paint a couple models for myself once a month just to refresh yeah. like what I like to do. Um, because oftentimes we're, people send us links and they're like, can you copy this? And it's like, well... Obviously, we can. We just don't want to. <laughs> we'd yeah, rather we'd I, rather do something new. I would be totally upfront with somebody and yeah. do that as well. Uh, you know, yeah. it, I mean, even if they have an existing army and they want me to paint something that's sure. going to go into that army, yeah. I will let them know that I will use their army photos as inspiration. Sure. But I'm not going to do a, co a copycat job because yeah. that's not fun for me. And if it's not fun for me, then the paint job is going to suffer for it. And then you know, the client may not be as happy as they otherwise would be. Sure. And in most cases, when I've explained that, clients have been really open and they say, okay, I can understand that point of view. And they end up being happier with the result when I've had that little bit of freedom versus trying to pin the artist into exactly what they think they want. I think it's one of those interesting conundrums that at some point someone had to paint the first model, but um, people see that and they like it, they gravitate for it to, for whatever reason, whether they like that particular model, but then they have a hard time imagining anything other than the thing they like. And, and that happens to us a lot where they say, can you do this thing this other person did? And a lot of times we, we always constantly are sort of pushing them like, yes, we can, but if you let us off the leash a little bit, we can experiment, have some fun with it. Um, you know, if you give us a little bit of trust, e even now, which is funny, you know, we're like probably 12,000 photos deep in our galleries. We'd like to think that we have enough samples to be trusted, but even now it's hard. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it is. yeah, but that's interesting. Well, um, go ahead. Sorry. That, that's why I say, I say, you know, sometimes you have to have these discussions with clients and, and give them a different perspective as opposed to just going with what they think they want. Because a lot of times what they're asking for is because like you said, they like the paint job that they, that they saw somebody else do. They can't think of it any other way, whereas the artist that they're contacting might have a completely different vision for it. Sure, sure. That the client will still enjoy. Um, if somebody contacts me, and I mean, this has happened before, where somebody's contacted me and said, hey, I really like this paint job that so-and-so did. Can you replicate it? And I'll go, why don't you just contact them for the commission? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times we get that. We got actually one of those today, and it was a. In that case, it was a pricing thing. They were like, "Well, their prices went up." Um, but yeah, if you find someone's work you like, I always recommend. Look, they they watermarked their images. You can find them. Just just talk to them. Yeah. 
Um, Because generally speaking, if you can't copy it exactly, and to be fair, we we do our best, but it's hard. Every artist is different. Every style is unique. So at best, you're doing a knockoff, you know, in the the best possible world, Um, which is ultimately disappointing for everybody, I think. Now, I don't necessarily, I, I, I definitely want to talk more about your privateer press work, but before we get completely off commission work, just out of curiosity, um, now, I don't, I, I'm sure that you probably don't have a standing uh, a price for anything. Like most artists at your level, you probably do it on a, on, a, on a case-by-case basis. Every project's unique. Could you tell us, though, just in a general sense, like about how many clients do you take on a year? What kind of projects attract you? Um, uh, and maybe like, um, I, I don't know, like as a commission artist, um, what kind of lifestyle does your work afford? So, uh, this year I've actually sort of changed things around a bit. Okay. So I, I have found that my, for me, my personal enjoyment, as well as, um, making the most of, of my time and, and money basically, it's. Um, better for me to teach classes and teach other people how to paint than it is to do commission work. We actually find that most, I mean, I I don't know if you'd agree with this, but that's definitely kind of a bread and butter for artists at your level, I would say. It is, um, because I can make more money doing one class over a weekend with 15 people than I can do doing commissions. So, I mean, if all I have to do is one weekend a month, basically, or one weekend every couple of months and make the same amount of money I would be if I was painting 10 models a month. Well, I'd rather go teach. Of course, yeah, sure. It gets me out of the house because that's that's one of the downsides of doing this full-time, right, is you are alone. And you you mentioned the weather earlier, how pretty it was outside, and I, I my first thought was I haven't been outside in days, um, which is not true, but sometimes it feels I, that way. Well, I, so I started going going back to the gym this year, um, sure. and I we only have one car, which Mark takes to work, so that means that I have to walk to the gym if I want to go, and that's like my way of forcing myself outside because otherwise you you. you it's so easy to just stay cooped up in your house when you're just working from home all the time and you don't really go outside and you become hermit-like and then all of a sudden you're yelling at the kids to get off your lawn like you're 90 years old, you know? So yeah. So for me, it is nice to go and teach because not only do I get to impart my wisdom, I also learn something by teaching people, by answering questions, by doing demonstrations all the time. And then I also have the social aspect where I get to meet other painters and I get to exchange ideas and views and, um, you know, make friends. I mean, a lot of the friends that I've made since I've moved have actually all been people that I've met through classes. So you do more classes than commissions these days. Do you still keep up a healthy amount of commissions just to have some, like, spinning around money? Or is it more like, Um, you know, I'm kind of out of that game. I just paint for myself now. No, uh, I have three commissions left. Okay. Uh, and that's it. Okay. That's all, great. That's all I have at the moment, and I, you know, I, I, I don't really get a whole lot of requests these days um, because I have focused so much on teaching as opposed to pushing. Sure. Like doing commission work, and I'm okay with that because doing commissions all the time can be soul sucking. Oh yeah, it can because, be exhausting. Because even though you're painting all the time, which you might enjoy. You're not painting for you. You're painting yeah. for the paycheck, and you're painting something for the client. And it's not, it's not as satisfying as when you get to just sit down and totally unleash your creativity and do exactly what you want to do. So for me, I, 
I mean, to adopt more of the Roman Lapot method, we he and I talked while while I was in Germany visiting him, and uh, he basically takes on like ten commissions a year, and then everything else he paints basically for himself, and then puts up for sale. Now, I will say in, in counterintuitiveness to that, because we actually did a Roman, um, we we got to chance to meet him at Nova last year. And we, um, he, he publishes this document where he, it's sort of like a sales, um, catalog, I guess might be the best way to put it. Yeah. It's got all of his models in it. And in a lot of them, he'll actually say about how many hours he estimates that he took on the project. And then he has a a price point. And when you actually do the math on that, you realize that this, this gentleman, uh, as wonderfully as his paints, does not get paid a lot to paint by the hour when you break it down that way, which means that he is doing it because he loves it. He's doing it because yeah. he enjoys the he enjoys it still now, and uh, you know it, you can't get into this unfortunately to be rich. It's not no. if the best painters in the world can't be rich at it, no one can. Is the sad truth. No, and the, and that's the thing is that this is very much a labor of love. Yeah, it's something that you have to have a certain. So when it, whenever I get the questions in my inbox, and it happens fairly regularly, of you know I want to be a freelance commission painter and I want to do it full time and I want to leave my job and what's the best advice you have to give me I say how crazy are you yeah right if you only sort of casually enjoy it it's something you do to unwind after work it's a hobby that you really enjoy guess what you're not going to be able to do it as a full-time job you need to keep it as a hobby you have to be so incredibly it's an interesting journey where people, um, I, I don't know, for me, I got into it to make some extra cash because I didn't like my day job, and now I do my hobby job, or, or my now that my hobby became my, my day job, and yep. now there are secretly times where I yearn for a, a normal job, <laughs> where I simply Absolutely. go, you know, there's something refreshing in retrospect, and it's this Absolutely. weird, like, circle-like journey where you have to go, I mean, I've, I've been up till 3.30 every night this week painting, uh, and that's partially because of the fact that there's just, we have so many clients now that we're essentially kind of slaves in this weird machine where we are, we've, yep. we've both created this beast and now we have to feed it constantly. Um, yep. and, and so it's just this interesting conundrum that uh, you love what you do, but I actually haven't played a game in probably, uh, I mean, I'm a, I, was a, I got into the hobby through 40K. I haven't actually played 40K in about a year. <laughs> Uh, and it's yeah. because I'm so busy working that I never have time anymore. Um, so yeah. it's interesting. I think that you're, that's a refreshing point of view when someone says, what should I do? I, 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 I sadly have to say I agree. Like, maybe don't. <laughs> maybe yeah. just enjoy it as a I, hobby. And I don't want people to, you know, think, oh, you know, Meg's just basically trying to say that because she doesn't want more competition. No, you know, that's not it, it obviously. Painters in the industry. Sure. But I've been accused of that as well. And it's really, no. My genuine advice is, unless you really, really think about miniature painting and projects you want to do, and you're creative like 100% of your day, um, unless you are somebody who is so insane for miniature painting that you even dream about it, this is probably not the job for you. It is really, really difficult. And the things that people don't think about is that you don't get paid for your entire job. You only get paid for the hours that you paint. You don't yeah. get paid to do your taxes. You don't get paid to balance your books. You don't right. get paid to advertise. You don't get paid to do any of this stuff. That's all stuff that you do for free. And there are days when that's all I will do is publicity stuff, sharing things on 
substitute for the things that I sell or for the classes that I teach. That's it. It's one of those things where you don't think about all the little stuff that makes uh, that makes the job possible. Um, if someone says, well, how much did you get paid for that? And you're like, I charged $1,000 for this miniature. That sounds great until you think about the 100 hours it took to get to the point that you could charge $1,000 for that miniature, um, which is the long journey that many of us have to go through where it's like, well, that's the reality to it is that it's not a lot of money if you break it down that way. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I've been doing this for over 10 years, and I still yeah. get told that when I'm charging, you know, $400 per mini yeah. for a display piece, that that's too much money. And that's I, actually I, lower I, than I would have thought. I wouldn't have asked you what you charge, but that's actually pretty, that's actually lower than I thought you would say. Keep in mind that that's Australian dollar, which is oh, okay. way weaker than the euro yeah. and the USD. Sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting paid, like, what, 250 USD, 300 yeah. USD, something like that, yeah. something around there. I mean, the thing is, is that, and how many hours would you say a typical, let's say a 28 millimeter miniature, and obviously there's no way to say for sure what a typical 28 millimeter miniature is, but how many hours would you say you put onto the average project? Um, Maybe in a ballpark, like within 20 hours or something. It's a difficult thing though, right? Yeah. What's a typical 28 millimeter figure? Well, let's use, um, here's a practical example. One of the ways that led me to your website in the first place was that we were doing, uh, this was years ago, by the way, is that we were starting to experiment with incandescent paint. And um, I read a blog article you had written that was about a flower night project you had put together. Uh, and you had done some incandescent paint, and I was just, I really, not only did I love the model, but I loved your practical approach to it, and it made uh, our, our, our attempts much, much more productive in the beginning versus, you know, floundering uh, like a, a, bit, a fish on the beach. Um, yeah. So how long, and I'll, I'll try to see if I can't find a direct link to the picture so people can see exactly the model I'm talking about. Do you remember maybe about how long it took you to do the flower night? That flower night took at least 40 hours. Okay, that sounds that sounds right. That actually sounds low, but that sounds right. That's why I say it. Least, yeah. Because it yeah. years ago. Because it was, it's, a, it's an unbelievable remember, model. It was sort of in my fog of trying to get things done for Gen Con. And, yeah. Um, I, like, I worked on that up until the, the moment that I basically boarded the plane sure. and, and headed out to Indianapolis for yeah. Gen Con. Was, um, was that a client yeah. piece or was that just a piece for yourself? No, that was just a piece for myself, and I still have it, mm-hmm. uh, despite all of the knocks it's taken. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's been dropped three times. Oh, no. <laughs> on concrete floors. Oh, jeez. The risks of cons. No no enamel um, can can stop that. It, it wasn't even at the con. It's been at classes where things have just happened. It's like the most accident-prone mini I have. Sure. And of course, it's one of the most delicate ones that I have because it's the resin copy of it, not plastic. Okay. So yeah, now it's been retired from traveling now. It doesn't go anywhere with me. So let's jump back just a bit. Um, so now you currently split your time between teaching and painting. Uh, yep. After, excuse me, my throat kind of got, <clears throat> one second. Sorry. Excuse me. So after um, you, you started painting miniatures, um, you decided at some point to launch a website uh, and that website became Arcane Paintworks. Was that a joint venture with you and Mark, or was that an independent venture? No, nope, Arcane Paintworks is mine, and it's actually, it's sort of evolved into Arcane Paintworks, like, ages ago when, uh, you know, GeoCities and shit was still going on. Oh, um, yeah, I forgot about GeoCities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, way back in the day, when you used to have the HTML code yeah. and everything, and it looked snazzy with some animations. Sure. Um, I had Meg's miniatures, and that oh, okay. was sort of 
first incarnation before social media and you know really took off and um so I would link to that all the time that's where I had my portfolio and so I'd always post that into like the forum posts sure for like for for like 15 year old kids they're just gonna have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about if anybody really young is listening to this you're gonna be like GeoCities what's that (laughs) I remember but yeah you're right our younger base Um, will be like what what the fuck are you talking about? Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's I fine. We're, we're not a PG podcast. We're okay. Like, I, I'm surprised I haven't dropped more F-bombs sure, sure. in the whole podcast. I'm it's totally okay. I'm having a bit of salty language. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so it started there. And it was mainly just to have the ease of access because otherwise trying to post pictures and forums all the time, it was, like, so clunky. So it was just easier to have one link to one spot. And, and so I kept that going. And then... Um, it was like after I left Privateer Press and I was sort of thinking about rebranding myself because sure. I had I went through a bit of an evolution. I was working for Reaper Miniatures for a while and then I left them to go work for Privateer Press full time as a staff painter. And so while I was there, I got to really work on my technique um, and my painting style evolved and changed and what I became known for sort of evolved and changed as well. And so I wanted to rebrand myself, and, and at the time that I left Privateer, that was sort of when everyone was creating their own studio pages on Facebook, and it wasn't just known by the artist's name, it was, you know, you had to have some sort of snazzy studio name. So um, all of my friends back in Seattle, they would always tell me that whenever they watched me paint, it was like watching a wizard at work, you know, they, they could see that I was actually applying paint to the miniature, but they had no idea how I was doing things, it was all magic. And so that was how Arcane Paint Work came about. Arcane Magic. Okay. No, I get it. I mean, it's yeah. first off, it's snazzy. It's certainly easy to remember. Um, and it doesn't sound quite as uh, colloquial as Meg's Miniature. So I think it was a good choice. Yeah, I think so, too. It, it, it's worked. Um, so Mark is now under the Arcane Paint Works banner just because why not? Yeah, sure. Um, why spend you know? more time building two websites when, you know, one will do? Well, right. And, you know, he, like, the last thing that he wants to do after he does a, a full day of IT work at, at work is come home and work on his own personal website. So instead, he's just let me keep him under my website, and then I take care of all of that. So, so um, it works out. Can we talk about your experience at uh, companies like Privateer Press and Reaper just a little bit? Because, like you said, when you went when you went to Privateer, you said you were developing your style a little bit. So were you kind of uh, – how did one make the leap? from painting for clients to painting for a major studio? So, um, I, well, like I said earlier, I lost my job during the, my previous job during the recession. Sure. Started uh, doing full-time freelance work throughout the recession just to kind of stay afloat. Worked at Reaper part-time and all that stuff. So, of course, when a full-time position landed in my lap, um, with privateer I, I jumped at the chance and so I packed up my car and took my dog and drove up to Seattle and we moved there and my very first day at privateer they took away my wet palette they took away my Windsor Newton miniature series brushes and they took away all the paints that I had ever known and they gave me dry palette large Windsor Newton Raphael brushes and p3 paint and they said okay we're going to teach you how to two brush blend with this and I was like, right. I've never heard of two brush blending before in my life. What is it? Did they mean so, like? Did you mean like wet blending or something? No, it's not wet blending. That's that's actually 
actually something that people get confused about a lot is that they think it's wet blending, sure. but it's actually a wet on dry blending. Okay. Um, but what, so it's basically the privateer press style of painting. And um, from what I understand, it was uh, the McVeighs when they started the P3 studio when Privateer was first getting created. Mm -hmm. um, Allie, who is, from my understanding, a uh, classically trained watercolorist, she started painting models for Privateer Press. And she basically took some watercolor techniques and sort of adapted it to become this two brush blending technique where you put a dot of paint down on the model and then with your clean brush that only has a little bit of water and saliva in it you blend that dot of paint out so you're creating a gradient of paint just by dragging a dot of paint across the surface so it's almost like traditional blending or like feathering kind of it is but it is a little bit different and it's a little bit faster you get really really neat results in just a short amount of time so the, that's the benefit of doing it for display work is that sure. you're not just sitting there doing a thousand layers of glazing. You sure. just put one dot of paint down, spread it out, and then your blend is created. Like, okay. You're done. Nice. Um, so, so anyway. Which, sound, which you make it sound very, very easy, but I've actually tried stuff like that before, and I can say it's not. It, I mean, I'd love, to, I'd love to see a practical tutorial on it. So, so if people try it a couple times and they don't get it, don't feel bad. It took a professional painter six months of hard work to get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, so, and like, it also depends on how it's explained to you, how good you know of a demonstration you have, whether or not the weather is even cooperating for you that day. Because if it's really hot and dry outside, two brush blending is actually way more difficult. Sure. Because the paint is drying faster. Right. So anyway. So they had taught me their style of painting, which then I sort of mingled with my style of painting, and so my style just evolved from there. Um, but like I said, for two and a half years, I basically just got to focus on painting. No base work, nothing like that, because everything was just put on game bases for you know the company, box art and stuff like that. So I really got to focus on the technical aspect of stuff as opposed to the creative aspect, which was good because it allowed me to just focus on one aspect of painting so much that now I sort of have the technical tools down that I can go back to just working on the aspects again with everything that I'm painting. What was it like going from being an independent artist working for yourself and for clients uh, on your own, working for a studio where they dictated not only the tools you used, but the techniques and the colors? It actually wasn't so bad. So, I mean, I had been using some of the P3 paints before I got to Privateer. Yeah. Uh, in conjunction with, like, a smattering of GW and Reaper and just whatever I had on hand, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, it, it really wasn't so bad just switching everything. The, the hardest part was just learning the two-brush blending and not relying so much on glazing and doing thin layers like I was used to doing. Um but otherwise, going from a freelance position to a company position, at, at that point in my life, it was really nice because I at least felt like I had a little bit more security. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it really threw me. No, it's, I mean, you, you turn in a pay, you, know, you know, you have a place you can go and work. You don't have to worry about, you know, somebody your next client. 
well, that's right. Yeah. You know, like it, as long as I have my job, I and I go to my office every day. You know, I I knew that I had a paycheck coming. Yeah, but sure. It, it it sort of relaxed me and gave me peace of mind, so that I really could focus more on my painting as opposed to worrying so much about. Oh, there are the dogs. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, it definitely helps when a major company sort of endorses you that way and they, uh, you know, they sort of give you their blessing to paint for them. How many painters did they have on staff out of curiosity? Um, when I was there, only one other one, that CPA trip. Oh, okay. All right. So it's a very small so staff. Just two of us. So we yeah. had a rather furious work schedule almost all the time. There was maybe a handful of times where we actually had like a couple of lulls. Sure. And then since we're, we were so used to such a frantic pace in the studio, those lulls actually make you a little anxious. Sure. Because you're like, okay, like, what's, do I really next? just have all this time to kill? Or, yeah. like, should I be on other stuff? Like, sure. Um, uh, what um, yeah, what led you from... Matt. Sorry, I'm cutting you off. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, it was just me and Matt in the studio. And um, uh, seven sculptors, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. You guys were outnumbered three to one. Oh, yeah. And I was the only girl in the studio. So ah, okay. that made things interesting. So, um, so did you leave Privateer uh, to pursue more of your own personal work again? So um, I, yeah, basically, I left Privateer because um, the opportunity arose to come to Australia and do classes. Yeah. And the way that that came about was actually a press ganger out in Canberra here um, mm-hmm. said, they just contacted me one day and said, you know, do you think Privateer would ever send anybody out to our convention to, you know, teach a class, do demos or painting classes or anything like that? And I said, well, you can, you can certainly ask, but I don't think that that's something that would ever happen, mainly because the journey is so expensive. And, yeah, it's a, it's know, a pretty though, expensive venture. It is. And even though, you know, it seems like companies like Privateer Press and Reaper and you know, anybody like them, even though we think of them sort of as these, like, Goliath companies, really, when you work for them and you understand a little bit more of the financials of the companies, you realize that they aren't made of, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars, and they can't just send people all across the globe, so, you know, he and I ended up talking about, you know, maybe I could come out on some of my vacation time, or, um, you know, doing, like, a little meet and greet and a couple of little private classes for the convention and then that turned into okay well if I come out for three weeks I'll, you know I'll do one weekend at the convention and then maybe I can do two other classes um, just to pay my expenses for getting you know to and from Australia and then that turned into New Zealand one other class and then that turned into 
we want six classes out in Australia. So that meant going for a month and a half, which I had nowhere near that amount of vacation time before I was here. So I um, started looking at, you know, the difference in my salary at Privateer Press and the income I could make teaching classes. And uh, when I talked everything over with my boss, he, he basically gave me his blessing and said, you know, they, they couldn't match or even go above what I was already getting paid. So, you know, they totally understood why I would want to leave to go pursue classes. So it was something like in the six classes that I taught um, over the course of a month and a half, I made a almost my entire annual salary at Privateer Press. Wow, that's uh, that's 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 amazing and surprising and, and then, fantastic. And I mean, that's not a that's not a regular occurrence. No, sure. Doing this um, sort of full time, but because it's not full time, I'm I'm doing like a class every couple of months, basically. Um, but you know, at the time, it was definitely much more. I could see that it could be much more lucrative if you want to go and teach a whole bunch of classes. So my first year after privateer, after I left privateer, I think I taught at least 15 or maybe 20 classes. Mm -hmm. And that's an exhausting schedule to keep up because it basically means that you're traveling somewhere new every 10 to 14 days. Every other weekend you're on the road, literally. Uh, yep. and then when you consider like not only time away from home, but, uh, yeah, that, that definitely will play havoc on your system. Yeah. And I mean, it got to the point, where, you know, doing my like grand tour the year after I left privateer, it, it was great for the travel and for meeting everybody. And I had a really, really great experience. But after that year, I was so exhausted. Sure. <laughs> and that, that was also the same time that I was making my plans to emigrate to Australia. So not only was I having to go somewhere every 10 to 14 days for a class, but when I was home, I was having to deal with immigration stuff and then taking my dog to the vet to get ready for um, biosecurity and, and quarantine because he was emigrating with me as well. And so I was just, I was busy. I was so exhausted once I finally got to Australia. I think I just didn't do anything for the first three months I was here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, just out of curiosity, so you don't teach as much, I I guess, now. You don't do the 20 rotation thing. How many classes do you teach in a typical year now? Um, Well, there, like, that's the thing is that there really hasn't been a typical year yet. Oh, okay. Okay. Because I, because I, moved here two years ago so like so you're still kind of figuring all that out yeah like this is sort of my my first year to sit down and really figure everything out um because right at the time that i was moving to australia was also when i was starting to plan my europe trip that i sure. did at the end of 2016 okay um so yeah so you know i basically i try and teach like four classes a year in australia because mm-hmm. I know this might be a foreign concept to Americans, but there's only five major cities in, like, all of Australia. That is a foreign concept to me. I would not have believed that was true. Particularly when the country is, like, almost the same size as the U.S., like, geographically speaking. Right. But there's only 20 million people out here, and there's literally five capital cities, and then everything else is basically, like, small farm towns. Wow. That's interesting. So we live in a town that's considered fairly large for our area and there's maybe 25,000 people here 
you know, I, I don't think people think about this, but um, you, you know, when you're telling that story uh, about, you know, in six shows, you were able to earn the, the income you would typically earn in a year. The thing is, is that you you have to. It takes a lot of work to get to the point that that's even a possibility. Um, yeah, that you have to you essentially these 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 cons hire painters um, like yourself um, because you will draw in people you are you are a uh, you know you are an attraction so to speak like they come to learn from you and they are willing to pay money not only to get into the door but get into your door to yep. learn from you um, yep. and the thing is is you have to spend many many years building up not only who you are but as an artist but your technique your website your notoriety you know, so that people know who you are so that that happens. So it's yeah. kind of one of those things that those six shows are the reward for many, 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 many years of hard work. Many, 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 many thousands of hours. Yeah. I mean, like people have asked how many miniatures I think I've painted at this point in my life. And I honestly, I couldn't give you yeah. a guess. Like I have, I have no idea how many I've painted because there's many that there. Like, I see photos sort of resurfacing every once in a while. I'm like, oh, yeah, I did paint that like right. a years. Um, I'm so starting I'm to experience small. that in a smaller degree. Someone will be like, did you do this? And I'll be like, I don't, I don't remember. Maybe it looks sort of like. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, a vague, foggy memory. Sure. And I'm just like, yeah, maybe at some point. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's just like, well, and also doing those six classes in Australia, only one was at a convention. So there is only basically like one major tabletop game convention out here in Australia. Sure. And um, again, the Americans, they're going to get a good laugh at this. It maybe brings in about 5,000 people. That's relatively, that's pretty small compared to things like when you think about stuff like, uh, you know, Gen Con or Dragon Con or or that kind of stuff, Adepticon, that boast, you know, 50,000 a day or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's crazy. So, um, so yeah, so I've, I've actually continued to work with this convention out here. It's called CanCon because it's in the city of Canberra. So sure. Can-Con. Okay. Nice. And um, uh, I've continued to work with them, and I'm actually now the person that's running all of their painting events every year. That's so great. So I've taken over the painting competition, and I've introduced classes, and we do a painter's lounge where people can spend like basically five dollars a day and sit in the lounge and just paint all day long and chat with other painters and swap ideas and just have a cool place to hang out. And um, we just did our third year in January, and uh, it was our most successful year yet. And we had one of the best turnouts of not only numbers of miniatures for the painting competition, but also the quality was just absolutely staggering compared to the previous two years. You know, it, it just occurred to me, um, we haven't really even had a chance to talk about Crystal Brush at all, um, and I'm, I think our episode is probably going to be a little longer than I would, uh, th- that we wouldn't be able to get into too many details about it, but could you give people a brief, uh, I don't know, a sort of short pitch on what Crystal Brush is and why they should consider entering if they're painters? Sure. I think you mean Crystal Dragon. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got I've got cons on my brain now. And, yeah, well, uh, yeah. I, mean, I mean, Crystal Brush, Crystal Dragon, it's sure. uh, obviously, you know, you can mix them up. Yeah. Um, so for Crystal Dragon, basically, my idea was to take all of the elements from shows that I really, really enjoyed in the U.S. and sort sure. of hearing how the European shows were handled and bring that to Australia. Okay. So it's, we don't do a first, second, and third placement in the show. It's basically an open competition, which means that 
if it warrants a gold award, it gets a gold award. So we can have 20 gold awards throughout the competition, you know, 50 silvers, 40 bronzes, you know, a couple honorable mentions here and there, things like that. So there's there's no limit. We're, we want to focus more on the painter being rewarded for their level of skill and expertise and maybe encouraging them to do something again the next year. That's actually really um, refreshing. I also find that, because our community out here is really small. Like, I think I know probably at least 50% of all Australian painters. Okay. At the very least. Sure, sure, sure. It, it's, a, it's a really small community. Everybody knows everybody. And I didn't want to have just a first, second, and third competition because to me that breeds a little too much negative competition. I, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, um, it's I almost like the karate belt of painting. It's sort of like, we recognize yeah. what you've done. Right. And so I wanted to focus more on having a cooperative um, painting show where, you know, the judging was still tough. It's not easy to necessarily get a gold standard, but we want, so, but we wanted, we didn't want people to walk away feeling discouraged at the same time. Absolutely. So the reason that I chose to design the competition this way was um, Australia used to have a golden demon competition out here, and that's what everybody used to paint for. And Mark, my husband, is the last Australian Australian Slayer Sword winner um, from 2012. Like his, that, his sword is the last sword that was ever given out in the country. Nice way to go, Mark. Yeah. Right. Um, and after that, the painting community just sort of collapsed a bit out here because there wasn't now an annual event for people to travel to where other painters could see each other and talk and share ideas. And so when I, I was talking to people about setting up another competition, I basically did a poll and asked, you know, what do you guys want? And the number one thing that people said was that they wanted prestige. And so we had a discussion about what creates prestige because, you know, I can't just... I can't replicate the Slayer Sword. I'm I'm not going to institute a Golden Demon because I'm not part of GW, you know. So that's that's not coming back. I had to come up with something that was my own, and still work with my vision of what I want to see more painting competitions to be like. But we still wanted it to be a bit difficult of a competition because that's what gives something prestige is the difficulty. You know, if you just hand out gold left and right. It's no incentive to go and actually compete because people know that they're just going to get a gold or they know they're going to get a silver, and it's not a challenge. People wanted the challenge. So um, it's the three judges are myself, Mark, and Sebastian Archer. I don't know if you're familiar with Sebastian's work, but he um, is a sculptor. Uh, he has his own line and game called Twisted, and he's won I don't know how many Slayer Swords, and he's traveled all over Europe and done competitions there. So Seb's kind of a, a big name. And um, we have, like I said, done this competition now for, for three years, and we've gotten a lot of really good feedback from people. And um, for the most part, it seems to have re-energized the community again. So there is now this one event that the Fantasy and Sci-Fi Painters can come out for. Um, and we also welcome the historicals guys, and we've had some Gundam show up and other like anime statuettes and stuff like that. So we don't discourage anything. Basically, if you want to paint something and stick it into the competition, it's more than welcome. That's amazing. So um, we'll definitely provide a link so people can can take a look at that. But that sounds so uh, so 
forward thinking and so uh and so fresh i, I really like what you're doing with that i think that's great you know it's it, like it rewards people for the work they do not for being not quite where someone else is yeah exactly like i don't i didn't want people getting hung up on comparing their work to anybody else's work sure. i wanted them i wanted it to become more of like an individual competition <clears throat> yeah where they're competing against people. themselves yeah yeah that makes perfect sense well so, meg we're almost out of time but um before we get completely wrapped up is there any final advice you'd like to give to painters out there that are listening maybe just something you wish you'd you'd heard in the very beginning uh about about anything really um it's not really anything that i wish i had heard in the beginning but it's i always i mean i'd say any professional painter probably always gets asked about are there any shortcuts? Are there any cheats? Are there any, you know, easier ways of doing things? Sure. Speed painting. Is, <laughs> yeah. The answer to that is no. There is no shortcut. There is no cheat. There is no easier way of doing things. If you want to be good at painting, you have to practice. Yeah. I, I would 100% and agree with that. To that extent, it's not like, because I, I have this discussion in almost every class that I teach. Getting enough practice doesn't mean that you need to sit down for, you know, five hours every day to try and paint. If you can sacrifice 30 minutes, an hour, every day, every other day, it's more about the frequency of your painting than doing long stints of it. Because if you are able to sit down every other day after work for a few minutes, maybe after the kids have gone to bed, you know, you have some quiet time, crack open a beer or whatever, sit down and paint just for a few minutes. Doing that repeatedly means that it's going to be easier for you to just sit down at the table when you do have a few spare minutes here and there. I think that's that's sound sage advice that it's more about it's the tortoise, not the hare. You know, it, it's more it about is. the long journey, taking your time than rushing ahead and looking for quick and dirty techniques to make your work pop. Um, yeah. And to be fair, because I, I am not I am not a great painter, and I my the business that I run is more about volume than qual- quality. Um, I would probably tell people there's room for both, but if you want to paint like a, the best painters out there, you're 100% right. There is no quick well, way. Yeah. I, so to your point, yeah. I would argue that the more frequently you sit down to paint, the faster you are going to be at painting because you're still, even even if your focus isn't that you want to you know work on your speed. No, if sure. You're able to practice regularly things are going to become easier you're going to it's basically going to be muscle memory right you know, that's 100 percent true so, not, not like, only that but things like your hand-eye coordination or brush confidence yeah. as i like to call it uh color mixing confidence even you're not yeah. going to get hung up on right. you know mixing your colors in order to get a certain shade that you want you're just going to be able to pick everything just by yeah. looking at you know what you have in your kit and just going for it um yeah or even just simple right, experience, yeah. just learning like this particular paint that I want to use doesn't mix well with this particular medium and not yeah. having to retread those mistakes again and again. And that's all just experience. That's exactly. Like, there, there is no silver bullet to, to learning color theory either. And that's something else I get asked a lot of questions about. Um, you know, you can sit down and read the books and you can read introductory color theory mm-hmm. academically, but until you sit down and you start mixing colors and making mistakes, you're not going to actually, like, it's not going to cement yeah. in your brain. Because we, we have actually had many episodes where we talk about color theory and it still feels like a foreign concept sometimes. Um, but I, I do think that the more you, uh, the more you work with the colors, 
you know, it's like anything. If you strum a guitar enough times, like eventually you're going to pick up a chord um, where you just. Yeah. You know. um, so I, I would recommend if anybody out there is struggling sort of with color theory and light and all of that, um, a book that I picked up at Roman's uh, recommendation is uh, James Gurney's Light and Color book. Okay. James Gurney, the guy who did Dinotopia back in the day. Yeah, he's. So, uh, I loved that. I will not. I'm not embarrassed to say I loved that book. <laughs> well, I think most people from like the '90s probably yeah. loved Dinotopia. Dinotopia is fucking awesome. Yeah. And he uses one of his Dinotopia art to explain color theory and light usage and um, his style of painting. And it's it's what I like about his book is that it's not dense. It's basically he introduces the concept on one page and it might go over to two pages to explain the concept. That's it. And then you move on to the next. I mean, I, I think that like everything we've been talking about today, that's refreshing. Um, it's just so like matter of fact, and I'm, I'm definitely going to see if I can't find a copy of that and link for people to sort of get a chance to look at that because that's fantastic. So if you want to put up a link for just about everybody else in the world, Amazon carries it. And then for Australians, you can find it on booktopia.com.au. Awesome. Well, um, Meg, you have been very generous with both your information and your time tonight, and I really appreciate it. Um, and awesome. we're definitely going to have to pick your brain in the future as well. But thank you very much. And, Mark, I know you're back there somewhere. Thank you for... Uh, for helping to support each other over the years. We didn't even get to really talk about your guys' marriage, being married to painters, but we'll have you back on and we'll, and we'll chat about it again. Oh, yeah. <laughs>